28. John chapter 4, verse 28. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are prepared to worship the Lord through the teaching of His Word. And we do that, as we learned last week, we worship by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth. To gain or to make sure we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, we have to confess our sins. We confess our sins. God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is a matter of privacy, the priesthood of every believer. It's our privilege to go directly to the throne of grace. And if we admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He immediately forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and then we, are, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we can resume the spiritual life. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll start. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to fellowship around the teaching of your word this morning. We pray that as we study these things and reflect upon the truth of your word, that we, it will result in the ultimate goal, which is true worship of you from the inside of our soul, as we submit to the authority of your word and believing it, taking it in, transforming our souls, our inner life, so that we live lives that glorify you. So we pray this time to honor you and glorify you through the teaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a time that is plagued by superficiality. In the secular world around us, we're often dominated by superficial views of life, superficial views of, of music, superficial views of the arts, music, entertainment, superficiality, shallow observations seem to rule the day. The church is not immune from the influence of the superficial and the shallow. Too often the views that many believers have of the Christian life, of even God, of grace, is superficial and shallow. The same is true when it comes to evangelism. Too often the evangelism that is conducted by believers, is, if it is even close to being right, it is superficial and shallow. One of the things that we are learning in our study of the Gospel of John is just what God means by evangelism and witnessing. And we have some tremendous examples, and we'll see even more as we continue our study through John, of the Lord Jesus Christ witnessing to unbelievers. And as we go through John, chapter by chapter, we will build our understanding of witnessing, the dynamics of interaction with an unbeliever. One of the things we've seen is that this is going to differ from individual to individual how Jesus conducts himself in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4 is different from the way he approaches Nicodemus. However, there are certain things that are common to both. One thing we have to remember today is that evangelism is not salesmanship. We live in an era when people and when evangelists often use salesmanship tactics in order to communicate the gospel. But what you find in most evangelistic techniques is more, has more in common with Shackley and Amway and other multi-level marketing approaches and has very little to do with the techniques that are given in Scripture. And the reason is that we have forgotten that the gospel is a supernatural message. The problem is, is spiritual so it has to be confronted with a supernatural message. 
empowered by a supernatural power which produces a supernatural end. The rejection of the gospel has nothing to do with human intellect, human emotion, psychological needs, social background, or anything else, because the issues in the gospel are ultimately spiritual. And that gives us great comfort because when it comes to sitting down with somebody and explaining the gospel to them, we are comforted by knowing that ultimately it's not up to us to convince them rationally, to give them every proof in the world, because the issues are spiritual. We rely upon God the Holy Spirit to make the gospel clear. It's our responsibility to make sure that we explain it to the best of our ability and that we do all that we can do to explain it, to answer their questions, and to make it clear. But it is up to God the Holy Spirit in His convicting ministry to convict them of the truth of Scripture. So we have to learn these things from, from observing uh, how Jesus interacts with these people in the Scriptures and from what the uh, New Testament tells us. And so we continue with a little review this morning as we look at, to remind ourselves what Jesus is doing in this conversation with the woman at the well. Here's the scene. It is in an area of Israel called Samaria. It's at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Just to the north is Mount Ebal. These mountains are about 5,500 feet in height, not the towering peaks of the Rocky Mountains, more like the Appalachians or smaller foothills, I guess. And it's, it's, it's a historically and theologically rich area because as far back as the Jews can remember, back to the days of Abraham, this has a, a significance. Abraham built his first altar in this area. Jacob owned this particular well, bought it from um, bought it in that location, and it was passed down as an inheritance to his descendants. Just north of, of here on Mount Ebal and on Mount Gerizim is where the Jews divided six tribes on each mountain as they returned, as they came into the land under Joshua, and they reaffirmed their commitment to God and in Deuteronomy, and they sang antiphonally. One group sang the blessings, the other side uh, answered with the curses as they uh, rehearsed orally their commitment to the Mosaic Law. So there is this great background. It was here on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans, after, the, after Israel was conquered by the Assyrians and the Jews of the ten tribes were relocated in other parts of the Assyrian Empire and various Gentile people were then brought back into Samaria where you had the interbreeding between Jews and Gentiles producing sort of a uh, half-caste race that was looked down upon by the Jews, that they needed a central worship site. And after the division of the northern and southern kingdom back in uh, the 10th century B.C. under uh, Rehoboam, or excuse me, under Jeroboam, after the division of the northern and southern kingdom, they established an alternate worship site in competition with the central temple down in Jerusalem. And even throughout this area in the uh, intertestamental period, the Samaritans had built a competing temple, a sanctuary here on Mount Gerizim. And then in the Maccabean revolt, John Hyrcanus had torn down that temple. But still, Samaritans would come to Mount Gerizim in order to worship God. And so there's this, this religiosity that's associated with this area. And so it's, no, uh, it's not by chance that Jesus picks this particular spot to give a discourse on worship to the uh, Samaritan woman. 
But as Jesus comes, traveling with his disciples, he's headed north from Judea. He has been, I think it's important to note the reception he had in Judea. There was hostility. There was reaction from the Pharisees. He did, there was not an overwhelming response. So he's leaving Judea, and he is headed north to Galilee. And he goes through this, the area of Samaria, and it's about noontime. They stop. It's time for lunch. He sends the disciples on into Sychar to find the local deli and pick up a few sandwiches to bring back for lunch. And he knows that he has an appointment with this woman who will come to fill her water jars. And there he is going to confront her with the gospel. In this conversation, we learn several things. First of all, that Jesus approached her on the basis of what they had in common as creatures of God. He needed water, so did she. They were both thirsty. He establishes the conversation on that basis. He doesn't start off with trying to find common ground on the basis of rationalism, logic, history, or commonly held beliefs. What I mean by that is that he doesn't compromise his position from the beginning. This is something that is typical in evangelism. We sit down with an unbeliever and we say, okay, you believe in God and I believe in God. Let me show you how my belief in God, how Christianity is better than your belief in God. See, as soon as we start this comparison, what we are the, the hidden subtext of all that is that there is something higher than the self-authenticating message of Scripture that we can appeal to, which is human reason and logic. We're going to compare and contrast my view and your view, and you'll see that my view is more logical. Hence, the common ground is logic. But that's not what we're looking at. I'm not saying the gospel is illogical or irrational, but that's not our ground of appeal because anybody operating on a human viewpoint system is going to interpret the facts, reason, the data differently. We have a classic example of how presuppositions control interpretation of facts going on on a day-to-day basis right now. No matter how you view what's going on in Washington, what you see is there is one set of facts. There is one group that is interpreting those facts one way and another group that is interpreting the facts another way. It's their interpretive vision. It's how they view reality that is determining how they interpret the facts. Nobody doubts what the hardcore facts are. It's the meaning they assign to those facts that differ, and that's their interpretive framework. This is the same thing analogously. This is what happens when a believer is witnessing to an unbeliever. You're coming to the facts of the gospel, that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day, uh, and is in heaven today, ascended to heaven, and that salvation is by no other name given among men than by the name of Jesus Christ. That's your assumption. You're looking at it from divine viewpoint. They don't have divine viewpoint. The unbeliever, according to 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 12, the natural man or the soulish man, that is the person who's not been born again, doesn't have a human spirit, so he's spoken of as soulish, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. So in the midst of witnessing, you have to realize that this person, this unbeliever, is spiritually brain dead. And they cannot understand the gospel. They cannot understand the gospel. So you're over here, we'll put an E for evangelist, whether it's someone with the gift of an evangelist or someone who's just explained the gospel. You're trying to communicate spiritual truth to somebody who's spiritually brain dead and doesn't have the capacity to understand 
doctrine. But what happens is the Holy Spirit functions as a human spirit in that individual. So that instead of saying, I've got to somehow convince them of the truth by appealing to an autonomous authority such as logic, reason, history, something like that, we don't have to do that. I'm not saying you don't have to know what you're talking about. You don't have to be able to answer questions. This isn't the ultimate ground of appeal because the Holy Spirit is working to make sure that that individual understands the truth. Now, that doesn't mean they will accept it, but they will understand it so that they can make a decision based upon that. At that point, they have a volitional decision to make. The Holy Spirit functions as a human spirit and makes the gospel understandable. So at that point, it is transferred into their noose, their mind, the outer lobe of their mentality of their soul. It's translated into the noose as gnosis, academic knowledge. And they have a decision to make at that point whether or not they will be positive to the gospel or negative. In other words, they can accept or reject Jesus Christ at that point. If they trust Christ, then at that point they are regenerate, and God the Holy Spirit, at the moment of salvation, creates and simultaneously imparts a new human spirit to them, and God imputes to that human spirit eternal life. That's the dynamic of what takes place. Now, Jesus is sitting down, and for instead of appealing to some autonomous area of common ground, he starts off, I mean, autonomous area in the realm of ideas, he starts off on the basis of creaturely needs. I'm thirsty, I'm a creature, you have a water jug, I don't have a water jug, why don't you give me some water? And then he uses that to go further and to develop the conversation and to get her curious about eternal things. But she's operating like most unbelievers, and many believers for that matter, on just a very physical level, not interested in spiritual things at all. And we've gone through the discourse there and the conversation and how he finally gets her attention. And he gets her attention down in verse 16 when he says, Go call your husband and come here. And we have seen how up to that point she was fairly chatty with him and had very lengthy sentences and, and then all of a sudden, he mentions her husband, and she becomes very closed-mouthed. Her, her answer is, I have no husband. In the Greek, it's only three, three words, and she doesn't want to talk about this. This is a sore spot with her. And this is a very interesting uh, point that we need to make here. Is secondly, first of all, we saw that Jesus approached her on the basis of, her, of their own creatureliness. Secondly, Jesus didn't go any further than what the woman understood. He doesn't just dump the whole load on her at one time. He has to move her along point by point. See, sometimes when people get involved in evangelism and they're witnessing to somebody, they all of a sudden want to trot out everything they know about the Bible and how well they understand all the issues. And all that does is just kind of turn somebody off and it blows their ears back and they, don't, they hear all this vocabulary, all this doctrinal terminology, and they're turned off. See, you don't, go, you don't move beyond what they're able to handle. You take it very slowly, step by step, make sure they understand basic things first. Don't start off, in other words, telling them they need to be saved. They don't understand that they're spiritually dead to begin with. You have to start off with the basic problems of spiritual death and sin and how Christ solved the problem. You can't give them the solution unless they first understand that there's a problem. 
So Jesus goes very slowly, and he's going to expose what the problem is and the way he addresses this. Second thing we get here, I mean, the third thing that we observed here is not to get distracted by false issues such as personal sins, moral failures, criminality, or religious background. Too often people want to make, or Christians want to make these things the issue. But it doesn't matter. Recently I was talking with a friend of mine who's taking a seminary class, and in this classroom there was a young seminary student who had a position as assistant pastor or something like that at a local church. And they were trying, and this guy brought up a problem in class that they were trying to figure out whether to have church discipline on a guy in the church because he smoked. They didn't want somebody who smoked coming to their church. I thought, well, you know, if they don't have anything better to do than to start running people off like that. What a legalistic attitude. You know, it doesn't matter. See, that's a problem with most many Christians is they want to major on, on things that are not the issue. They want to focus on personal sin. They want to per- focus on certain behavioral traits or characteristics rather than on the issue of grace. And it just shows that the common Christian today doesn't have a clue as to what the gospel is all about or what the spiritual life is all about. They just want to run around imposing their moral standards on everybody else instead of really dealing with the spiritual issues from a position of grace. So Jesus, when he approaches her, he makes this point, but he does it in a very remarkable way. He asks about her husband in order to show her that he knows everything there is to know about her, but he's not judging her. When he says this, he says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And he, he says, you've well said I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. You're living with this guy. And this you have said truly. Now, he doesn't make an issue out of it. He lets her know he knows her. He knows her through and through, but he's not judging her. He's not going to condemn her. And this really gets her attention. Another part of this, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this move because everything in the conversation changes after verse 18. One thing it does is it makes her realize that there are spiritual and moral issues that she's got to deal with. Up to this point, she's just been operating at a very surface, physical level. Every time he mentions, I'll give you living water, she says, well, wait a minute, I'm still thirsty. What are you going to put it in? She's thinking physically. At this point, all of a sudden, she realizes begins to realize that everything that he's saying is talking about spiritual things, and her response is, I see that you're a prophet. So something radical happens between verse 18 and verse 19. So we can say that Jesus' statement focuses her attention on moral issues and that she has to face her fallen condition before she realizes her need for a Savior. That's part of what's going on here. Second thing is Jesus doesn't make her past marriages, her past sins, or her present sin, her present situation, the issue. You never do that. You should never do that in witnessing, and you should never do that even in the spiritual life. Somebody comes in here, no matter what their moral background might be, no matter what their problem might be, you don't go up and say, make sure that they're living what you think is a morally pure life. It's none of your business what they're doing. They're here in order to learn the Scriptures and to grow. Let God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God take care of the issue It's not our job to take care of the issue. That's why the Scripture says, Judge not that ye be not judged. And this is what happens in so many churches. 
they create false issues, and so people end up running around thinking that Christianity consists of giving up this, giving up that, getting involved in this program or that program, and they never understand grace, and they never truly understand the gospel. And the third thing that happens here is Jesus lets her know that he knows everything about her. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He understands every sin in her life, and he's not judging her. And she realizes that she is known now as never before, and she's accepted as never before. That's grace orientation. You see, usually this woman, think about it, she's from this village of Sychar, which probably had a population of between two and 500 people. Now, you know what it's like living in a small town, that there really aren't any secrets when you're living in a small town and everybody knows everything. And there's always the person who's not quite moral, who's living down on the wrong side of the tracks, and everybody else seems to look down their nose at them because of whatever it is that they're doing. There's always the self-righteous crowd in any town or in any church that looks down their nose at someone who's not quite living up to their superficial standards. And frankly, there's nothing worse, in my opinion, than a self-righteous person, but it really gets bad when you're talking about some self-righteous women. And they get together in their little Sunday social club or their little uh, women's Bible study or prayer meeting, and they start talking about how we're going to pray for so-and-so. Doesn't she have problems? And so there's this religious uh, cloak that's put over the gossip and the maligning and the character assassination and the arrogance that goes on in trying to get all involved in somebody's business. And they treat this woman as she's, she's the tramp of the town. But she's really not. She's made some bad decisions. She doesn't have a clue as to how to choose a husband. But she's been monogamous to each one of them. I mean, she's not running around being promiscuous. She is having, she's having one marriage after another, but she doesn't have a clue how to pick a man. And now she's living with this guy because she's probably decided, why ruin a good romance by getting married? <laughs> you know, and they're, they're, now, that's, that's not, uh, don't take me wrong, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> that's the way she's thinking. But there is a principle there. There are too many people who have ruined good marriages and good romances by getting married, and they never should have gotten married in the first place. That doesn't mean they should live in, in, uh, out and, and live together either, but that's not the solution. But they shouldn't, uh, just shouldn't get married. They need to exercise a little wisdom, and she obviously hasn't exercised any wisdom. So she's treated as the town... Now we're going to get to some grace orientation on your part. She is treated as the town tramp or the town slut. So what we have in this passage... If I were to title this, I would call it Grace and the Slut from Sychar. <laughs> because that's what this is all about. And this is how we understand real grace is, and what's going to happen at the end of this chapter. This woman is, is viewed and looked down upon by everybody else in town because of her morality and their perception that she is just nothing more than a tramp and she's living with this guy and everybody knows about it. And so Jesus comes along, and he sits down, and he has a conversation with her. And this just really gets her attention because, number one, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, and Jews were forbidden to drink after a Samaritan, number one. Number two, according to the Mishnah, no rabbi could talk with a woman in private or in public 
and he couldn't even talk with his own wife if they're walking down the street because somebody might get the wrong idea. You know, that reminds us, and might get offended and think that he's trying to start something with some woman. You know, that's always, you find that with a lot of Christians who get caught up in the 1 Corinthians 5 or Romans Romans 14 problems with doubtful things, that they're so afraid that some Christians should do something, engage in some activity, usually smoking, drinking, dancing, because it might give somebody the wrong idea. Well, the only people it's going to give the wrong idea to is Christians, because non-Christians just don't care whether you smoke, drink, drink, or dance. They really don't. The only people that get offended are unbelievers, who are, I mean, are believers who are screwed up in legalism. So the point you need to realize is Jesus never kowtows or caters to the self-righteous crowd. He's always antagonizing the, the, uh, the Pharisees and all their little legalistic rules and everything, and he breaks every one of them because they're not founded on the Scriptures and the Word of God. So he's going to start, he starts the conversation with her, and she is impressed by his grace orientation. And this is one thing that always gives us a hearing with unbelievers, because we're not going to make their behavior, their past, their sins, their failures the issue. You have to be grace-oriented. So he witnesses to her, and as he explains to her, lets her know that he knows everything there is to know about her, she begins to realize that he is a prophet. And in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, there's more going on here than what meets the eye. When you read that in the English, you think, oh, she realizes that he, he can tell the future. He knows a little bit more about her than the next guy. But in, for both the Samaritans and the Jews, the term prophet here, probably if we're translating this into the English, we should capitalize it. I perceive that you are the prophet. I think at this point she might be saved already. There's, there's, we're not told everything that was said, or at least she's beginning to wake up to the fact that he's making some messianic claims. The term prophet goes back as a technical term, not just as a reference to any prophet, to Deuteronomy 18. Moses, Moses wrote at that point, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, the Lord said, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So in Deuteronomy 18, there is this prophecy that there would be a prophet like Moses that would come up, and the rabbis had interpreted that for centuries as referring to the Messiah. So when she makes this statement, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet, she is already entering into the the view that he's making messianic claims. Now remember, the word Messiah looks like this in in the Hebrew. Mashiach, M-E-S-H-I-A-C-H. We translate it Messiah. It means the anointed one or the appointed one. And the Greek equivalent is Christos. This is where we get the title. This is not Jesus' last name. This is his title, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. And it, too, means anointed or appointed one. Why is John writing the gospel? These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. 
So she's beginning to realize that he is the Messiah, the Christ. This is what John's telling us all about this. If you look at it, some 42 verses are, are given related to Jesus and the Samaritan woman, as opposed to about 20 verses related to Nicodemus. What does John think is more important? He's putting a lot of emphasis. He's giving us a lot of information about this episode because of its significance. She is realizing that he is a prophet. Now, remember, John said, I'm telling you all these things so you can realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I'm going to give you several, I'm going to marshal several witnesses throughout the last three years to substantiate my case. The first was John the Baptist, and the second is going to be this woman, because she becomes a witness to the town, and she becomes the instrument by which a revival takes place in this small town of Sychar, and a large, almost the whole town becomes saved. I'm getting ahead of myself. So he confronts her, and she, dis- she begins to realize he's the Messiah, but she's got some theological questions. And so this is another thing. Don't get distracted in witnessing by le- with legalism and sin issues, number one, and number two, with theological questions. Well, wait a minute, I don't know about this. Well, what about abortion? And what about those who aren't saved? And what, what about the heathen? And what about evolution and creation? Now, they may be legitimate questions, but don't let somebody distract you from the gospel with those. And this is where experience comes to play, and it just takes time to figure out whether it's a serious question, whether they're really bringing it up because they need to know this, whether they're already in the process of accepting Christ as Savior, but they've got some things they just need to be have resolved in their own mind, and you need to help point them in the right direction. Well, she comes out of a historical background where there's all this competition between the Jews and the Samaritans, and she wants to find out what the answer is. So she raises the whole question about where should we worship in Jerusalem or here on Mount Gerizim, and Jesus gives a prophecy that worship is getting ready to change. It's no longer going to be based on ritual or in a temple, but it is going to be based on a new formula, and we get the new formula down in verse 23. And the new formula is that true worship is based upon the filling of the Holy Spirit plus epinosis doctrine in the soul, and that equals true worship. You have to have both. Worship is, Jesus said, is by means of the Holy Spirit and truth or Bible doctrine. So you have to have truth. It's not based on how you feel. It's based upon these two criteria. You have to have both or you won't have true worship. And last week we studied worship, especially in terms of aberrations that are taking place today in the realm of music. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 24 that the reason for this is that God is spirit. That means he does not have a material existence, a material body. And those who worship him must worship him by means of the Holy Spirit and doctrine. Now look at the woman's response in verse 25. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. And John gives us to the Greek reader a little uh, aside here to explain the term. He who is called Christ. I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now look at what she says here. You know it's the Messiah because he declares all things to us. What happened? Jesus declared everything there was about her back in verse 18 when he tells her all about her husbands and everything. And then when she goes into town and she starts witnessing, what does she say? Look down at verse 29. 
Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Messiah? Now, she doesn't tell him it is, but she's saying, okay, you go investigate this for yourself. But what's the catch? What's the point that she's making? The point that John wants us to catch is that Jesus displays his omniscience as the Son of God in this episode. That's what gets her attention, and that is the sign of his Messiahship. That is his, part of his messianic credential, which he uses to establish his, his position and his veracity with the woman. So she says, I know Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus responds with a very interesting statement in the Greek that is poorly translated in the English. Here he says, I who speak to you, it says here, I who speak to you am he, but that's not how it is in the Greek. In the Greek it begins with the first phrase, ego, me." And then he says, I am, and then the next phrase is a relative participle, the one speaking to you. Now this is an important phrase. E-G-O plus the verb to be, a-me, I am. This is a title of deity. Later on, when Jesus is in an interaction with the disciples, and he uses this phrase, ego, a-me, they realize he's making a claim to deity and they bend over and they pick up stones to throw at him to stone him. It is a, a roughly equivalent to the Old Testament name for God, which is based on the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means four tetragrammaton letters. Sacred letters. It looks like this in the Hebrew. Transliterated Y, Y-H, W-H. Now this was is the personal name for God, which we would probably which was probably pronounced Yahweh. Now, a little historical background that's interesting. The Jews would never read the word Yahweh when they were reading the text. That's God's personal name. They treated it with respect, and so they substituted the Hebrew word Adonai. Now. Adonai has some interesting vowel points to it. What they would do, because they never pronounce the personal name for God to remind the reader to pronounce it Adonai instead of Yahweh, they took the vowel points from Adonai and added those to Yahweh. So you came up with a word that looks something, we would say, like this. Except because of the influence of German scholarship, the Y was a J and the W was a V, and that's how they invented the word Jehovah. But Jehovah doesn't have anything to do with the original Hebrew. It's kind of a combination word, the consonants from Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai. And so when you get people who come along and say, well, if you're really going to worship God, you have to worship Jehovah, they really don't know what they're talking about. That's just a side point. So when Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you, Jesus makes a specific and explicit claim to be the Messiah and to be God. And at that point, her mind just goes into overdrive and she starts understanding everything he's been saying to her. And it's not any mistake that just as he makes this self-revelation to her, the scene shifts and the disciples come bouncing back in from their little trip into town, not having a clue as to what's going on. 
So the scene shifts. The drama begins to build. The energy begins to build in the narrative. Verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled. That means that they're just flabbergasted and shocked to the very core of their being that he is speaking with a woman. But they showed a little poise and a little grace orientation. They've been with Jesus now about eight or nine months, maybe a year, almost a year. And they're learning a little bit. And so they knew to keep their mouth shut. Now, this is something a lot of people never learn in life, and that's when to keep their mouth shut and when not. And so often, you, you, we've all experienced this. We're in a conversation with somebody, and it, it's, it's an important conversation. All of a sudden, somebody comes up and just butts in, or they, they horn into that conversation and start taking over because they're completely insensitive to the fact that these two people are already engaged in a con- conversation. So they just show a lot of rudeness, bad manners, and insensitivity and butt in. The disciples show good manners and sensitivity, so they've learned a little bit, and they keep their mouths shut. The text says, Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak to her? Now, they're just shocked because they're legalistic. That's why Jesus wanted to get rid of them in the first place, is because they would have just screwed up the whole encounter. They saw the woman as they were leaving the well, and they dropped Jesus off, and they head to the deli in town, and they go down the path. They saw the woman as she was coming to the well. Did any of them stop and witness to her? No, they didn't give her the time of day. They're out there, they're concerned about their food, and so off they go. Now, they are shocked, though, because rabbinic tradition said that it was completely sinful for a rabbi to talk to a woman in public, and yet here Jesus sits talking to this woman. But she's not there for long. They, they watch this, they see her talking, and all of a sudden, she, she, as the scene develops, I think she's, he makes his claim, and she stands there, and she looks at him, and the light really dawns, and she gets excited, and then she heads to town, verse 28. The woman left her water pot. Now, she left her water pot for two reasons. Number one, because she's excited, and she wants to get into town to, to tell the news. And number two, what started the conversation? Jesus said, would you give me something to drink? So she leaves the water pot so Jesus can have something to drink. It's not just that she's she's excited, but she is. And there's a point here. And that point is that we ought to have this kind of excitement in our spiritual life about the doctrine we're learning and about the gospel. And this is what happens when you're first saved. I remember when I I was six years old, and I think it was Mother's Day of 1959. And my parents came home after church, and I wish I knew what the message was that morning. But they sat me down, and this is something every parent, you ought to be doing this with your kids from the time they're three years and up, sat me down and explained the gospel to me. And I said, boy, that's great. I can go to heaven. It's just a free gift. I accepted the Lord. And I shot out the front door and ran down the street to my best friend and told him the gospel. That's enthusiasm. That's excitement. And unfortunately, as we become older as believers, we lose that enthusiasm. We witness to a few people, and we get our egos bruised. And so we're not quite so happy and excited to communicate the gospel with people who are going to react to us. But she is, it's overcome all of her reticence. Now, this is a woman who has been ridiculed and shunned and ostracized by all the small-minded, small-town gossips in Sychar. 
Yet what's the first thing on her mind? This woman has understood grace. She's seen it displayed to her right there at the well that this man just ignored all the cultural barriers, all the um, prejudices of the day, and he spoke to her, and she's understood what grace is all about. And so she can't wait to get back into town and tell the self-righteous crowd that she's found the Messiah. Now, she's not doing it out of arrogance. She's doing it because she knows that this is real. This is the only way to transform things is the Messiah. So she runs into town. The scene shifts away from the well. Verse 29, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Now, notice, she's tactful. She doesn't run into town and say, I found the Messiah. You guys need to be saved. She says, I found... I found this man, and he told me all things. And that's what this Messiah is supposed to do. Can, it, could, could this be the Messiah? And she puts it on them to check out the facts for themselves, to make their own decision. What is that? How does that relate? We can do that when we witness to people say, have you ever really investigated all the claims of Christianity? Or are you just rejecting it out of hand? Give, challenge people. Don't just say you have to. Don't just hit them over the head, bludgeon them with the with the gospel. Tell them you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to be saved and then run off. See, that's what a lot of people think is all I have to do to witness is tell people the gospel. And I'm just going to run around and hit people over the head with it. But she, she's, she is subtle in her approach and she says, could this, be, could this be the Messiah? Why don't you guys check it out? So they go out of the city, verse 30, and they were coming to him. So it's a process. It's present tense. They're coming to him. In the meanwhile, scene shifts back at the ranch. The disciples are continuing to ask him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, they're hungry. And the tradition is that the students can't eat until the rabbi eats. And they want Jesus to pick up his, I don't know, he's got a, he doesn't have a ham on rye, wouldn't have that. (laughs) He's got his corned beef on rye, his kosher uh, hot dog or whatever it is, and they want him to pick it up and start eating, but Jesus is not going to do that. Jesus is not focused on food at this time, and he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Wait a minute. He says there's a higher priority right now than eating, and you can just hear Peter going, My stomach's growling, Lord. My blood sugar's getting low. What could have a higher priority than feeding my face right now? Now think about what's going on here. The woman came seeking water. And the Lord starts talking to her about not just everyday water, but living water. And she can't get past the physical until he finally has to really make the point clear. And now the disciples, who are believers, but they haven't learned much doctrine yet, they can't get past the physical either. They just want to eat. And so Jesus is going to have to train them a little bit before the crowds come. He's got a, this is called a teachable moment. And he's got to explain a few things because he knows that in about 10 or 15 minutes, all these people are going to show up. They need to have uh, the gospel explained to them. And the disciples need to get their focus off of their stomachs and onto eternal realities and focusing on giving the gospel. So he's got to address the problem of priorities right here. So the disciples want to eat, but he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. What does this remind us of? 
When Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what does he say? He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As believers, we're, we have higher priorities. Our priority, are, we know reality from a spiritual dimension, and that that explains to us what the real issues in life are. And the real issues in life are beyond the details of life. And if you can't get to the point through application of doctrine to master the details of life, to get beyond the daily concerns for friends and family, for social life, for material things, for money, for all the, the details of life that plague us every day, if we can't get beyond that, then we're never going to get anywhere in the spiritual life. So Jesus is challenging them to put their focus beyond their physical needs and the details of life. Not that that's illegitimate. Those things are very fine. It's legitimate to have lunch. But Jesus is saying, you've got to understand what the priorities are, and sometimes you've got to quit having lunch so you can focus on the really important details in life, which is eating. And the the disciples still don't get it. I mean, the really important details of life, which is uh, communicating the gospel. Spiritual things. Verse 33, the disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? See, they still don't get the point. It just goes right over their head. They've heard him talk to John the Baptist. They, they saw him transform the water into wine at Cana of Galilee. They heard the discourse with Nicodemus. They know all about that. They've been with Jesus. They were with him in the temple. They were with Jesus throughout Judea. They've seen the miracles, but they just don't quite get the point. They are operating on a very superficial level, unfortunately the kind of level that most Christians live at. Jesus has to get their focus onto true things. So in verse 34 he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the priority in Jesus' life. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is the will of God in Jesus' life? Ultimately, it's to go to the cross. At this point, Jesus is focused on the cross. He's looking at them. He sees the crowds coming from town because already at this point they're coming over the hillside. And they've all got on their white robes, which is typical of the dress of that day. And so the, wheel, the, 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 the hills are being transformed into this flowing white. And he sees the people coming from town. And he, he knows that in a few minutes, they're going to come. They're going to hear the gospel. They're positive to the gospel. They're going to get saved. But beyond that, he sees that he's the one who's going to have to die on the cross for their sins. He's the one who's going to pay the penalty. And every time in the gospel that Jesus starts thinking about the cross, he loses his appetite. He doesn't eat. He either quits eating, stops eating, or he won't eat. So Jesus is focused here when he says, My food, my priority, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And the word here translated accomplish is from the, the verb teleao. Now, we keep running into this verb in various places in the in uh, various studies that we have. It's T-E-L-E-I-O-O. And it means to complete. Now, in the perfect tense, it means to finish. And Jesus uses the perfect tense form of the verb as the last thing that he says on the cross. Tetelestai. It is finished. So here he's already anticipating the cross by what he says here.
the will of Him who sent me. In other words, the, the, the will that God has for us, or our priority needs to be to fulfill God's will, and that is beyond whatever we want in terms of the details of life. We're never going to have happiness. We're never going to find meaning in life until we find our meaning in, the, in completing the will of God for our lives rather than trying to get the details of life that we think will make us happy. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work, that is, the plan of salvation. And then He's going to get their attention. He says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? See, they've been sitting there and they've been chatting and probably as they walked back they were looking around and, and it's uh, uh, I, a couple of weeks ago I think I made a mistake when I was figuring out the chronology here. This is probably January because of this particular sentence. Do you not say there are four months till harvest? Well, four months till harvest would make it January because harvest of the winter wheat crop was in May. So it's probably January. And uh, as they're walking back from town, they're looking around. They've just planted the fields, and they're talking about what the harvest looks like, just like farmers do and people in an agrarian society do. I'm sure you're used to it around here. And uh, people, they, they looked out there. Now Jesus says, there are four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. In other words, wake up. Look out there on the fields. They're white for harvest already. What's he referring to? All the people are coming from town. The hills are being covered with people. He sees their white robes, and they're ready for harvest in terms of the gospel. Then he says, verse 36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, the one who sowed, in this case, was the woman. The reapers are the disciples. They're getting ready to talk to these people, give them the gospel, and they're all going to be saved. They're going to be the ones who get the immediate blessing of leading these people to Christ. But they wouldn't get where they were if the woman hadn't done what she did. And that's the issue in the gospel. Someone plants the gospel, someone sows, someone plants, Someone else explains, and someone else comes along, explains a little more, and ultimately a person is saved. It may take more than one explanation of the gospel before somebody gets saved. Many times, it takes if they're, if they're an adult, it may take years before they finally reach that point where they put their faith and trust in Christ. And all along, everybody is involved, and they all rejoice together. That's the point of verse 37 and 38. For in this case... The saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not for that for which you have not labored. Others have labored. That's the woman. The woman you just didn't even pay attention to on the road here, and the one you were shocked that I was talking to, she's the one who did the sowing. And she's going to get as much out of this as you do because of her response to the gospel. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. That's the woman. She labored, and now you're going to get some of the benefit, and you're going to reap some reward because of your uh, communicating the gospel and leading many of these people to the Lord. So the disciples learn a lesson here in evangelism, and that everybody has a part to play, and at the end, they will all rejoice together. Then look at the response, verse 39. The scene shifts back to the Samaritans. And from that city, city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Now remember, John is building a case. 
John has said, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. I'm going to, John says, I'm building a case. I'm going to prove to you that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness number two, the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed that provide the credentials for his claims. Witness number three, the woman at the well in Sychar and all the people who live in the village of Sychar. They realized that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is that group. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. doesn't say they believed and were baptized. They believed and joined the church. They believed and repented. The issue is simple faith alone in Christ alone. Belief in him means that there is a specific proposition. Belief is not irrational. Belief is saying, I believe something to be true. What they believed to be true was that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the proposition. It's very rational. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Why? Because of the word of the woman who testified. She's grace-oriented now. Look at her. There's a transformation in her life. She, t- she witnessed us and told us that he told her everything about her, and we understood what she said, and so we responded. And further, they go out, and they're going to check it out on their own. So they believe her, her witness, her testimony, that he told me all the things that I have done. They know this woman. A lot of those men probably knew all the things that she had done. But they, um, they're impressed by that, and so they go out to check him out in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. See, faith is not just faith in faith. Faith is not, I believe I'm going to go to heaven just because I figure out God's going to save me, which ultimately is saying faith in faith. It's faith in specific words and specific content, that Jesus is the Messiah. This is why John says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the proposition. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that by believing, you will have life in His name. And notice how the society is transformed. Up to this point, she's the social outcast. The the society is dominated by prejudice. Prejudice between the self-righteous and the sinner. Prejudice between the men and the women. Prejudice between the women and the immoral in their perception, the tramp, and prejudice between Jew and Samaritan. What happens as a result of the gospel and grace orientation? All that prejudice, all that social division is knocked down. It didn't happen because the federal government passed a law that there's not going to be any prejudice anymore. It's not because the federal government passed a law for equal opportunity or anything like that. There's no, uh, there's no civil rights legislation here. Because the government can't solve these problems. Because the problem is not government-oriented. The problem is spiritual-oriented. And if we're going to see society transformed, it's not going to be through legislation, big government or anything like that, it's going, or any kind of social program. That only has a temporary effect at best. What really transforms society is salvation and grace-orientation. And that's what happens here. 
society is radically revolutionized in Sychar because they understood grace and they understood the gospel. And they were regenerate and became new creatures in Christ. And that changed everything. It changed all of their relationships. And the people who ostracized the woman are now talking to her. Verse 42, And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Transformation because of an understanding of grace. That's where it starts. If we don't understand grace and if we can't communicate grace, not only in what we say when we witness, but in our whole demeanor of how we witness and who we witness to and what we make issues in witnessing, then we'll never get anywhere and we'll never be successful in evangelism. And that's one reason a lot of Christians just aren't successful in a, in a human, from a human perspective is because they're giving out a lot of false clues, they're making a lot of false issues the main issue, and they never communicate grace to people. But the scriptures are clear that it is by grace that we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the clarity of the scriptures that our salvation is not dependent upon who and what we are. It's not related to our past failures, our past sins, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal salvation, that has never made it uh, clear their own belief in relation to the gospel, that they would do so now, to give, have this opportunity in the privacy of their souls to respond simply to the gospel, faith alone in Christ alone. That's all that's required. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The issue is not sin. The issue is not past failure. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ, same as the woman at the well. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to learn the truth of your word under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we might truly worship you. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.